You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Hello, Queen City Church. You folks are looking really good today. It's good to see you. Um, I don't usually do the iPad thing, so let's give it a shot. There we go. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. Who's been watching the new uh, Rings of Power show? All right. Other people will come up here and talk about sports and things like that, but they're going to get mostly nerd news from me. It's, it's the water I swim in. Okay. All summer long, we spoke about story and the ways our stories not just inform us, but also form us. And today... We're introducing a new series called The Easy Burden. And I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction. Then I have something I want my mom to share that I thought was really good. And then my dad is going to bring the like meat of the message today. Um, Real quick, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. You're good to us. You have good intentions towards us. And we actively receive those intentions and we are so grateful for you and all that you've given us to do uh, with our time here in the world jesus name amen and personally i thank you for all the people there's so many people in this room that i appreciate and if i don't appreciate you it's because i don't know you very well but i'm pretty sure that i will appreciate you and i'm gonna go ahead and appreciate you in faith But it's so good to be part of this church. I have some old friends and new friends here, and it is wonderful. I also have three kids, and so my attention is somewhat distracted sometimes at church. I think that's, if I had a major complaint, it's that I wish we had more time to connect. But, you know. Anyway, side note, that was a side note, but I'm going to jump in here. In this new series, we're continuing to talk about spiritual formation, but from another point of view. We're moving on, maybe not moving on permanently, but we are moving from just talking about the story we tell and into a conversation about the story that we live, the story we embody, the story we manifest, the story we fulfill. I heard someone say, And this is just something I heard someone say, and he sounded like he knew what he was talking about. When Jesus said that he fulfilled the law, that that word fulfilled was a common term, and it meant whenever you did what the intentions of the law were. Right? So the law is just like stuff to say. Right? The word is just something you say until you do it. And when you do it, you fulfill it with your feet, with your actions, with your body in real life. But what stories are we fulfilling? And we're moving into this conversation about fulfilling the stories. If that person was correct, I think that's 
uh, still. Um, there's definitely truth in that, one way or another. I'll do some research. I'll let you know next week, maybe. Um, uh, we're going to have some guest speakers this fall, and I think they'll largely stick to the topic, but if they don't, that's okay, because they're going to be great anyway. But for the most part, we are attempting to answer, to ask, excuse me, we are attempting to ask these three questions. What does it mean to practically follow Jesus? Why is this even a good idea? And how do we do it together? If you would, turn to Matthew 11. I feel like we might have this for the screen. If we don't, I'll let you look it up on your phone. It's up there. And it's a scripture I read last week. And I'm realizing that repetition is okay. It's just like a song. You repeat. They call it the hook in music, right? It's, that, it's the theme. They call it a theme maybe in a story or a movie or a book. But it's the thing that repeats over and over that gets in you, right? Um, but maybe this is the hook for the season. Matthew 11:28 Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's just talk about a couple of things. Here, I will give you rest. What, does that sound good to anybody other than me? I feel like rest is something I think about a whole lot more. Maybe it's because I'm about to turn 43 and rest is in shorter supply. If you have kids, you know, you know about that argument about, hey, go take a nap. And they think a nap is like, the worst thing in the world. And you're like, I would pay money to take a nap. If someone would come over and watch my kids, I would rent a hotel room to take a nap. Right? Rest is good. Rest is good. And, and Jesus is offering us a form of rest. A form of rest. And we need to think about what type of rest he is offering us. I think that when you observe um, wisdom, right? When you observe wisdom, when you observe wise ideas, they lead to a form of actual physical rest. I mean, there's a whole commandment about resting. He actually talks about that here in the next few verses. There's a whole commandment where God literally commanded us to rest, and of course, there's an argument here. And Jesus said, you know, the Sabbath is, is the Sabbath for the man or is the man for the Sabbath? It's like when um, Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they didn't have a concept for taking a day off. That was a foreign concept. You didn't take a day off. That didn't exist. And so God initiated a day off. And in some ways, 
a day off is an act of faith. Because it says, I'm going to have to do what I have to do in six days, not seven. The seventh day, I'm going to give it up. And I'm going to say, you know what? If six days wasn't good enough, then then it's just not going to be good enough. But also, I think God knows that we need rest. That we need rest. That rest is not um, punishment. Right? That God is not demanding you like spoiled kids to go take a nap because he's tired of being pestered. No, he's telling you to go take a rest because rest is good. It's a good thing. And he wants rest for you probably in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. He wants rest and peace for your soul, right? I will give you rest. And we find rest not in being untethered, but being rightly connected, right? And there's always a choice. There's always a choice. I think I wrote that in the wrong section i'll come back to that there's always a choice he begins with come to me come to me so the rest begins with coming to jesus you must make a choice like moses it's not something that just happens to you it's something you engage in you make a choice come to me it says in um when moses was uh In the wilderness, he heard about the burning bush and he said to himself, I will turn aside and go see this. So Jesus is chasing you. Jesus is tracking you down. The love of God is after you. But you have to make a choice if you're going to engage in this thing that Jesus has for you. It's not a thing that just chooses you. It's probably a thing that chooses you first, but then it's our responsibility to choose it every day afterwards. Come to me, Jesus said. Another interesting thing he says here is learn from me. Learn from me. This is really interesting. You know, Jesus is not just interested in a transaction. He's also interested in being your teacher like in an actual real way, right? Jesus as a teacher. Jesus came to show us a way not just to open a door. He came to show us a way not just to open a door. And it seems like he intends for us to learn something, not just to make a transaction. I just repeated myself because I said it and then I read it out of my notes. Repetition is good. Repetition is good. Take my yoke. Okay, this is an interesting one. So not only does Jesus want to give you rest, he's telling you you have to come to him to find this rest. He wants to teach you. And he's asking you to take a yoke. You know what a yoke is, right? So it used to be when you plowed a field, you had to push the heavy thing to make the hard dirt soft. And the way they did that is they took two beasts, two or more, 
I mean, I guess you could do it with one. I'm not a farmer. But usually I picture it at multiples because the yoke always has two loops on it, right? Take my yoke upon you. It's a weight that you place on a pair of oxen to do work. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you rest, but you're going to have to work to find rest. So interesting. But there is a yoke. There is a tethering, something that binds you in a good way to the good work. A yoke has weight. There is a responsibility. The call here is to a new work. But it's not the yoke of the world. In the world, you work to be accepted. You work to earn a place. You work to achieve You work to survive, and that's the work of toil. But in the kingdom, you work because you have been accepted. You work because you have a place, and you work because it's full of life and joy. We're working with God, not for God. There's so many interesting words in here. I want to talk about, actually, I want to have my mom come up and talk about the word easy. She was sharing this earlier in the volunteers meeting. I thought it was fascinating. Give it up for uh, Donna McMillan. Thank you. I've been thinking about these verses this week. And um, in, in reading them, the, the part about my yoke is easy and my burden light. That word easy, just um, I was just fascinated by it. I thought, when I think of the word easy, I think of something that's like a no-brainer, like two plus two is four, something easy, really easy. I thought, I think there's more to this than that in the meaning. So I looked up that Greek word that's translated easy in this particular verse and looked at other places where that Greek word is used to see how it's translated in those. And so I'm going to um, read you, uh, there are four of them here. Um, the first one is in Luke six thirty-five. Um, this is talking about the Lord. It says, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. That word kind is that same Greek word. It's translated kind there. In Romans 2, 4, it says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That word goodness is that same Greek word. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, Again, the word kind is that same Greek word translated here as kind. And then in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, um, it's talking about desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, that word gracious is that same Greek word. Um, and so I thought that gives a bigger, um, a bigger picture of the meaning of that word easy there. My yoke is easy. Jesus is kind. He doesn't put heavy burdens on us. I love it. So what were those words again? Kind, goodness, gracious. Was there another one? Kind again. Kind, goodness, gracious. 
And so, so he says, my yoke is kind. My yoke is gracious. My yoke is goodness, right? We'll talk about the easy burden. So what is this we are called to carry? What is this work? What is the work of apprenticeship to Jesus, discipleship to Christ? What is the work of learning to thrive with God in your inner life in a way that produces thriving for you and the people around you? And I kept coming back to this. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Because at the end of the day, I think that the work, the burden that Jesus has called us to carry is the burden of love. And I found this in my notes from a while back. I was must have been on an airplane or woke up in the middle of the night and I had like thousands of notes in my phone. Where's my wife? Did she leave? I don't see her anymore. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, remind me to tell her if I ever die to search my notes because there's a lot of good stuff in there. (laughs) Search my notes. But I have thousands of notes to the point where I can like actually type in, (laughs) type in words and it'll pull up ideas I had that I forgot about. But apparently I'd written this note a while back. I typed in the word burden and this came up. Just this little idea. Maybe joy isn't found in the avoidance of pain, but in choosing a worthy burden. Maybe joy isn't found in the avoidance of pain, but rather is a thing that finds you as you give yourself to something that's worth feeling pain for. It seems to me that meaning rarely springs from the absence of a burden, but often flows from a chosen worthy burden. Maybe the weight of Jesus isn't light because it's less painful necessarily. But it's easy because the yoke is love and love is a most worthy burden. If we must be crushed in life and if we have any choice in the matter, then why not be crushed by love? What if true freedom is not what comes in only laying your burdens down, but in taking on the burden of Jesus. If it's the human experience to carry a burden, if you're going to have to carry one, you're going to feel the weight of something. But it's better to feel the weight of something than to just float away. Do you know those people who refuse to carry any weight at all? People who refuse any burden or responsibility whatsoever, they often tend to lack substance and are paper thin and often float off into oblivion. And even worse, these types of free spirits often end up getting tied to other things. Have you ever noticed that? The people who have to be so incredibly free often find themselves in the grip of addiction. They create for themselves responsibilities that they didn't necessarily need to have by making bad decisions in the moment. Now, Jerry Seinfeld talks about night guy and morning guy. 
I'm eating cookies in bed. Is this a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> Ask morning guy. Or Homer Simpson is eating mayonnaise with a spoon. Someone says, isn't that, is that a bad idea? He's like, I don't know. Ask tomorrow, Homer. <laughs> That's tomorrow, Homer's problem. Not today, Homer. <laughs> right? But people who refuse to take on any, not, I mean, let's, and let's be fair. Some people take on too much. There are burdens that you can't carry. And Jesus has come to relieve you of your burdens. It's almost like this thing, you're carrying all this around. The only way to get you to lay all that stuff down is to give you something else to carry. He wants you to carry something that's gracious, that's good, that's kind. But free spirits often end up getting tied to other things. But the burden of love, the burden of gratitude, in my opinion, is the most profound thing Jesus ever said. There is a weight you can carry that will give you rest. That's the burden of love. Anyway, I found that note today. I found that note today. So what does it practically mean to follow Jesus? Why is it even a good idea? And how do we do this together? How do we do this together? Well, I'm going to hand it over to my dad, but before I do that, I want to read. Something that I think describes what the burden of Jesus looks like. Why can't I find Galatians? Somebody who uh, has been a Christian longer than me, remind me where Galatians. Okay, so I got one hand in Corinthians and one in Philippians, so I just need to, Galatians, there we go. This is what I think Jesus wants your life to look like. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, right? I could keep reading because this is all really good. But my point is that I think Jesus has an expectation for you. I think that Jesus expects that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. He expects that all this stuff would manifest itself in your life. But he's not going to, he's going to do the, Jesus is going to do the hard work. But he's asking us to engage in the process and in the program. And that's one beautiful thing I think about 
um, growing things. It's like God always does the hard part. I mean, it's hard work putting the seeds into the ground. But God's already done the hard work of putting everything into the little seed. Put a forest in the seed, right? So that's what I'm hoping we'll walk away from. Uh, That's what I'm hoping we're going to walk away from the series this fall is that we would um, (laughs) have a better understanding of what it means to practically follow Jesus. We'd be able to articulate why it's a good idea. And we'd have some sort of plan or practice um, about how to do this together. Anyway, that's the introduction to the series. My dad's going to bring a little bit of meat. And um, thank you guys so much for listening to me. I went a little longer than I expected. I'm sorry about that. Give it up for Robin and McMillan. Hello, hello. It was not longer than I expected. And that's not a slam on John Mark, but uh, once you get going, man. As I was thinking about this series, um, I've got uh, I've got twelve pages of notes, and I've got like fifteen or twenty minutes, maybe. So I don't even plan on jumping into all of it, but. I was thinking that to, to live in the reality of the gospel, of being connected with Jesus, um, well, everything that Jesus offers us comes to us through an accurate knowledge of who he is personal knowledge and experience with, I will call it the real Jesus, and how much we focus on him and what we know about him. Is everybody with me? In other words, if we're talking about spiritual formation, and we have been, and if we're talking about how Jesus promises us that in our connection with him, we will we'll thrive, we'll grow, we'll develop. And so that's, that's part of what he offers us there in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me. It's like the invitation of all time. You come to me. And it's, you know, when, we, when I read Matthew 11 and I, I hear... I don't, I don't need, is this still up there? 20 through 30? I don't need to go back through that again, but I love those verses because it gives me a chance to talk about Jesus and what he's like. And when you really know him and when you really know what he's like, it begins to affect who you are, what you do, and what you're like. Um... John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. What a statement. This, this, this is eternal life. It's not found in a creed. It's not located in a Christian philosophy. 
It's not come through obeying a set of rules or regulations. This is eternal life. Jesus said that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the simplicity of this complicated life we have is in knowing the person of Jesus. Well, what Jesus? You know, isn't it amazing how confusing the Bible can be? But when you read the red letters, you read the stories, you listen to the words, like these Matthew 11 words, you hear the invitation, um, and you begin to understand who it is, what this person's like, that we have been born again into his likeness. Well, that's a great thing to think about. I mean, the Bible patently tells us if you're a believer, you have living inside of you this very person that we're talking about. But we have a problem, and the problem is mostly between our ears. It's what we think, what we pay attention to, what we set, set our minds on. The Bible's really, really big about um, the transformation of our mind. But we have these accurate pictures of Jesus, and I say accurate because, first of all, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that what the New Testament records of the words of Jesus were actually things that Jesus said. And so when you read Matthew 11, this is Jesus' personal description of himself. It's not what Peter says. It's not what anybody else says, if you can understand. It's how he describes himself. And the description we have heard this morning is remarkable, remarkable. So what is Jesus like? And why is it important? Well, the Bible says in 1 John, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. If you want to be transformed, you need to see Jesus as he is. And so we hear him say words like, I will give you rest. Or I will refresh your life for I am your oasis. That's the Passion Translation. He says, I am gentle, I'm lowly in heart, humble, easy to please. How many of you know the easy to please Jesus? We don't have any idea how profound religion has perverted the reality of who Jesus really is and what he's really like. Jesus is cheerful. He says, I'm cheerful. That's one of the words there for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He says, I'm cheerful. Jesus is cheerful. Cheerful. And then they want to tell you about how mean he was to the scribes and Pharisees. Well, I think Jesus could have said they were whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones in a really cheerful manner. <laughs> that is really good, Robin. <laughs> Who's to say, right? Who's to say? He could have been really happy when he said that. Big smile on his face, just letting you guys know you're in trouble. <laughs> and we also find out this in Hebrews 1.9, it says that God anointed Jesus or he poured out on Jesus the oil of gladness more than anyone around him. So Jesus, why were people, why did people want to be with Jesus? Do you want to be with a happy person or pig pen? Do you want to be around the guy and the cloud follows him and the little dust of debris 
everywhere they go. I'm going to say this too. If you talk about Jesus, he'll come into the room. If you talk about the devil, he'll come into the room. Whatever you focus on is coming, ladies and gentlemen. You want to be depressed? Hang around with a depressed person. It's coming. You want to be encouraged? Hang around with a cheerful person. But Jesus was anointed. One of the primary characteristics of his personality was gladness and joy and cheerfulness. Why do you think people loved him so? I mean, how could you tell people the truth the way he did and they not be mad at him other than some of them? I see this too, that um, talking about what Jesus is like. In Matthew 12, verse 18, it says, take a careful look at my servant, my chosen one. I love him dearly and I find my delight in him or he has sunshined my being. That's the father talking about the son. Then it goes on, it describes him. It says, he will not quarrel or be found yelling in public. Jesus is not the guy you're going to get in a shouting match with because that's not the spirit of Christ. Oh my goodness. So we just sort of eradicated 85% of social media. Not Jesus. The other 15% is questionable, but at least 85% gone. He will not quarrel or be found yelling in public. He won't brush aside the bruised or broken. He will be gentle with the weak and feeble until victory releases justice. He will not fail or be discouraged. All of these come out of Isaiah 42 and they're repeated in Matthew 12. And the fame of his name will birth hope among the people. Jesus is not quarrelsome. He's not argumentative. He does not intentionally provoke people. I had a friend of mine tell me, he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, I want to know what your opinion is on something. And the Lord said, I don't have opinions. I have the truth. So we don't we think yeah, we think everything's up for debate. Well, yeah, you run into the Lord, you got another thing coming. He doesn't have opinions, but he's not argumentative. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't intentionally provoke people. And John Mark mentioned this as we think about Jesus, he must of necessity have been the embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit. Why in the world? Should we be filled with the fruit of the Spirit if Jesus himself wasn't? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I have been a believer for over five decades. I have done things worthy of rebuke from the Lord. And anytime I have been corrected by the Lord, it's been done with gentleness, not anger. If you're getting corrected internally, by some angry thing, that is not the Lord's correction because he is not, he's not that way. And so there are other things that Jesus said that express who he is. He says to love your enemies. I don't want you to hear these next things as what we should do. I want you to hear these next things as who he is. Love your enemies. That's who Jesus is. Do good to those who hate you. That's who Jesus is. Bless those who curse you. That's who Jesus is. 
Pray for those who spitefully use you. That's how Jesus responded to his adversaries. Whatever you want men to do to you, you should do to them. That was Jesus' motivating principle of life. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? For even sinners do the same. But he says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. And then it says this verse, this, this phrase kills me. Donna mentioned, it, Donna mentioned it early. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's who Jesus is. I don't believe Jesus is really transactional. Why would I say that? Because he said, love, not looking for something in return. See, love is not supposed to be a transaction between people. You're just supposed to love. Now, if people are loved unreservedly long enough, they can change. It's not a guarantee. I know there are people, you really do something really good for them. They think they deserve it. They're not even grateful. But you're kind to them because Jesus said you're kind to the unthankful. But love is not a transaction. It's not, I love you, so I want something back. That's a transaction. That's not really love. That's something else. And a lot of people who love transactionally, and this is something we we need to know, become disappointed and embittered. They didn't get what they wanted. Well, that's not the real thing. But the wonderful thing is the real thing lives in you. The real Jesus lives in you. Thankful, good to, kind to the unthankful and the evil. That has always challenged me. So I could say this, if you don't know Jesus this way, you need to reconsider what you really deep down believe Jesus is like. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Jesus, in our personal relationships with us, will speak to us personally when we're weary. Pay attention to any whisper that doesn't condemn you. You know, even prophetic ministry, and really prophetic ministry in the New Testament, just means you can hear something the Lord says that you can tell somebody that will encourage them. Even prophetic ministry is supposed to be encouragement. I think people make mistakes when they think about prophets and they go back to the Old Testament. I'll tell you what a New Testament prophet would look like. The most encouraging, profound, accurate, sensitive person you know. Because the Lord wants to speak those words to us. I have some experience. Um, I've preached now probably 30 years, and it doesn't happen to me anymore, but every once in a while I wouldn't do a very good job. And I can remember one particular time when I did a terrible job. And there weren't, but I don't know, six or 700 people listening. And when I sat down, when I, sat down I felt sorry for them. 
<laughs> for having listened to what I said. <laughs> but I had these imaginations. Maybe you can relate to this. And I was thinking I could hear people say, oh, that was bad. And then I started thinking, well, you know, I was trying to help myself. How many of you try to help yourself? I was thinking, well, you know, everybody's not going to like you. And people don't like you for crazy reasons. Too tall, too short, too skinny, too fat, too ugly, too handsome, whatever. But, you know, people are going to do this and people are going to do that. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the Lord spoke something that was like a marvelous, wonderful arrow that pierced my heart. He said this, yes, but I'm not one of them. That's what the Lord wants to do. Another thing about the Lord I really love is he loves to celebrate. When you look at the story of the lost lamb and the lost coin and the lost son, each episode ends with an invitation, which is come and let us celebrate. You know, God's a party man person. I'm ensnared in the whole gender identity issue here, I guess, but... Um, Jesus loved to party. Can I say that? Is that kosher? Jesus loves the party. It got him in a lot of trouble. They called him a wine bibber. <laughs> he was a wine bibber and a glutton. A wine bibber and a glutton. But Jesus, I think, he actually said one time, listen, I played the flute and you didn't dance. I sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. What's with you guys? So Jesus was a flute-playing, dancing man. Come on. Some people even describe the, Ruth is going to love this. Is she in here? Somebody's going to have to tie her down. Some people have even described the Trinity as like being um, this dance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um. I don't, yes, that's the word, but I'm not going there. But um, there's this dynamic life flow. And um, one of one of the, I'll probably try to end here. One of the most wonderful, wonderful portions of scripture to me is in John, uh, John 2, when Jesus turns water into wine. My goodness, how many of you, somebody in the front row, can you see how much I've written on these two pages right here? That's, I, I've got so much stuff written on there, you almost can't see the Bible. But it's all because of the Bible. And so um, I was reading this this morning, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit of this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus, and I'm going to ask you to do something you don't like to do, um, repeat. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited, say, just say invited, invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh, some have said one of the reasons uh, Mary said that to Jesus was he brought 11 people with him. And so Jesus' mother never underestimate the power of a mother's request. When they ran out of wine, 
And the term, what that actually means is when the wine failed, and, and listen, ladies and gentlemen, the wine will always fail. What? The wine will always fail. Why? So that you can learn how to get some more. We need to know. That's one of the things that Jesus wants us to learn of him is how to receive more of the presence and the power of God. So the wine failed. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, listen, she said like four words. There, she said, they have no wine. That's all she said. She didn't say, listen, son of God, Messiah, miracle man. Do you get what's going on here? These people are embarrassed. And see, that was what was going on. Jesus does not, listen, Jesus does not like to embarrass people. That's amazing. And so she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, oh, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I think suddenly it did come. I don't know how you can even read through this without having some real questions. He, he basically says, I'm not going to do it. It's not time for me to do this. And I think she just looked at him like, yes, you are. <laughs> I know when we lost our building and I was trying to find a building and I called about this building over here and the owner of the building, uh, they wouldn't let me talk to the owner of the building. And um, uh, I find, found out, they said, you can't have the building. I said, yes, I can. <laughs> I said that to myself because they wouldn't come out. They just said, they don't want to talk to you. And I said, they're going to talk to me. I'm not taking no for an answer. I've got to have an answer. I've got people that need a place. Never mind, we didn't have the money or we didn't have the place either. I figure if we found the place, we probably get the money. It only costs 300 and $40,000. I thought it would be like a hundred, but you know, so she did not, there's something good sometimes when you simply don't take no for an answer. Sometimes Jesus will act like he's going to walk away from you. You know what you need to do? Hey, bub, come back here. I think he likes that. Probably don't call him bub. That's not so good, but you know, you there's a dynamic in this relationship with God wants to be wanted. He appreciates being appreciated. This is not letters on the page. This is dynamic water into wine, vitality, relational thing. We're in here, ladies and gentlemen. We're in a romance, as it were. We're in a dance we're in this dynamic thing that you can't draw and quarter and overly define. It's art. It ain't science. Because science proves God doesn't exist. Well, you know. So Jesus' mother turns and says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's faith. He said he wasn't going to do it. She says, oh, he's going to do it. Watch. Whatever he says, that's a great, yeah, yeah, whatever he says. So there were, um, 
six water pots of stone. Now, this is an amazing thing. You know what those water water pots were? They were for bapt, uh, washing. There were sanitation pots, if you will, because they washed all the time. That was one of the things they made Jesus about. They didn't wash their hands before they took the grain off the stalk and ate it. And it was the Sabbath, and that was a problem too. All his critics. But they had these water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification, it says, of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So Jesus said, fill those water pots with water. They fill them up. Can you imagine making wine in a bathtub, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Fills it up with water. Don't you love the way Jesus just damages, not people, but concepts of propriety? I love that. Um, so he tells them, draw some of that water out, take it to the master of the feast. And when they took it, the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine. And he basically said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, that's what it said. Then the inf- And I'm not a proponent of drinking and alcohol. I think make up your mind about that. I'm just telling this what Jesus did. It wasn't grape juice. This is, it was, he turned something normal into something much more robust and lively. I heard this, for the law came by Moses Grace and truth came by Christ Jesus. Or Moses brought the rules, Jesus brought the wine. It's a dynamic life. But the master of the feast says that when everyone has already had something to drink, they'll bring out inferior wine because once your palate apparently has already had, you don't know the difference anyway. But he said, you have saved, you have safely guarded the best wine until now. Listen, I don't know where your life is. I know people in this room that are facing this, that, and the other. The best stuff has been safely guarded. See, we, we, need, to, we need to just take heart, take hope. Maybe this Jesus will do something remarkable that hasn't been going on lately. I can remember this. I have, Don and I are charter members of the Through Many Dangerous Toils and Snares We Have Already Come Club. When it comes to church and difficulties, and um, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't believe I was supposed to go to seminary, but I knew I had a call to preach, figure that out. So I went into business for 20 years, and at a given point, the Lord was really pressing me to, take a step, and I had problems, complications, and, you know, churches I started, and I was basically forced out of one church I had started. It's crazy. It's just I've been through that stuff. And I believe in going to church, ladies and gentlemen. I've been going to church since before I knew where I was. And now the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some are, but develop relationships in that context, knowing what you see coming. 
See, we don't know what's coming, but we know this. We better have relationships that can sustain it. And so I was in that place of trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I had a wife and four kids. All the kids were pretty young. And it was the first time in my whole life I didn't go to church because I was trying to figure out what to do. I just decided I'm not going to go to figure this thing out. First time in my whole life. And I told my kids, all right, we're going to have breakfast Sunday morning. I want you to bring something for the Bible. Which was like, I don't know, me expecting a miracle, I guess. But two of them came downstairs with that story of Jesus turning water into wine. And I found out later they could only come up with one story so they colluded together and said they both had it. So I don't, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I heard something to that effect later on. So they were handling the word of God deceitfully. <laughs> but when I, I just saw the six of us sitting there like those six water pots. All we had was water. We didn't know what to do. So we committed ourselves to the Lord and he really, he turned our water. He turned our water into wine. The things that happened from the time my kids were that age are incredible. Things that happened to them, things that happened for them, things that happened to me, things that happened for me, uh, the experiences we've had in the Lord. We have had a rich life difficulties and all, but we have had a, we haven't had a life of rules. We've had a life of wine. We've been refreshed. And I believe that's one of the things, Hannah, why don't you come? I believe that's one of the things the Lord wants to do for us is refresh us. How many of you want to be refreshed? You need a refreshing. You need a joy impartation. Well, I can tell you all do because you look pretty sad. Let's do this. Let's pray. Come on. Let's stand together. Let's do a responsive prayer. I'm going to tell you what to pray and ask you to participate. In the story we just read, none of it would have happened if they hadn't invited Jesus. So that's our first prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you into our lives. Lord Jesus, we have water. We don't have wine. That's not completely true, but Lord Jesus, turn our water into that lively, effervescent, intoxicating, joyful, gleeful, unbelievably wonderful wine that you have. Lord, we ask for your glory to touch us. Lord, in these weeks and in these months, we ask for your presence. Yes, you don't have, I'm just going to pray. I don't care what you do. Lord, we just ask, we ask for your presence. 
Lord, I ask for your power. Lord, I ask for your miraculous intervention. We stand opposed this morning to sickness, cancer, physical ailments, all those kind of conditions. And we release by faith the healing power of Jesus, the healing power of the blood of Jesus, the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus, the cleansing power of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to that free redemption, that which you accomplished through your pain, your agony, that you freely, freely hand us. And it's as though you say, don't achieve, receive. That's the word of the Lord this morning. Simply receive. What do you need? Receive. What are you asking for? Receive. Drink this morning, the Lord says. Taste and see that I'm good. Trust me again this morning, the Lord says. Let me reverse your conditions. Father, we ask for your kindness to be our portion. Lord, I pray that when somebody talks about this congregation, the way they will describe us is their kind. They're generous. They have power. They touch lives. They help people change. Lord, we ask and we take on that yoke you've offered us, Lord. We want to learn not just from you. We want to learn you. We want to receive the fullness of who you are. Lord, you're kind. We want to be kind. Lord, you don't do transactional love. We want to love from a pure heart. Lord, you released power and strength and healing to people. We want to release your power, your strength, and your healing to people. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.